It's Monday, December 7th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump continued to dispute the outcome of the election at a rally in Georgia over the weekend, while he also encouraged his followers to vote in the Senate runoff election there. Some experts say that while Trump's claims of fraud won't work in court, it could lay the groundwork for new voting restrictions. Joe Biden, in the meantime, continues the transition and will meet with Operation Warp Speed leaders this week. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for more. Next, space is increasingly becoming an integral part of militaries around the world. The U.S. Space Force is now one year old, and France and Japan have also created their own space divisions. More countries are expanding into space with ways that will benefit their societies and are increasing their defensive and offensive capabilities there. Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios, joins us for the rise of military space powers. Finally, because of the pandemic and dealing with isolation and the need for social interaction, it has forced some men to realize that they need deeper friendships. Many male friendships are rooted in shoulder-to-shoulder interactions, such as watching sports or playing video games. And with most of that gone right now, they're feeling the need more than ever to make deeper connections. Samantha Schmidt, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for how some men are looking for more out of their friends. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So many of the states, I won every one of them, every one of these states. And by the way, the swing states that we're all fighting over now, I won them all by a lot. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. President Trump continues to dispute the outcome of the election. Uh, This past Friday, California just certified all of its votes, cementing the victory for President-elect Joe Biden. But as I said, President Trump continues that fight. He was at a rally in Georgia on Saturday. And while he told people to turn out to the Senate runoff election, he did continue his whole thing about how the whole thing was stolen and rigged by Democrats. Uh, I mean, he he doesn't seem like he's going to concede anytime soon, really. Uh, No, the president is showing no signs of abandoning this sort of chaotic um, attempt to overturn the outcome of the election. He's had almost no victories in court. And in fact, judges, even once he nominated to the court, have been pretty scathing in their rebuke of his attempt to overturn this election. It's clear it's going nowhere. He's going to be moving out on January 20th, but we're watching what looks like someone sort of stuck in the denial stage of grief and just unwilling uh, (laughs) to relent. And he continues to fight with the GOP governor there in Georgia, Brian Kemp, the secretary of state there and, and other Republicans who refuse to support him. Same in Arizona. I mean, you can look to Arizona where he's fighting with Governor Ducey, just trying to pull all of the levers of power. And it's not working. I think what we're watching is sort of an exhibit in how the way our democracy is set up, that even the most powerful person in the country can't undo an election that's been certified by the states. You know, there was a Washington Post survey of all Republicans in the House and the Senate. They found only 29 members in Congress that said Joe Biden was the winner. I think two senators that said that. Overall, they said about 88 percent of Republicans won't say who won. So I don't know if what this uh, attachment to the president is, if it's that, if it's they they just don't want to admit that they lost. But, uh, you know, a lot of Republicans in power really not saying who won yet. 
And then the president tweeted that someone should send him the list of the ones who did say he lost, uh, <laughs> calling them Republicans in name only. I mean, I think that this is sort of if not for sort of the seriousness of, of our elections and the transfer of power, you know, delving into the absurd. This is not going to change. The president is lost. The people around him know he's lost. Uh, there are sources telling NBC, have been telling NBC since day one that they're trying to convince him to come to terms with this. And it's really sort of a sad and at times alarming play, display of, of how he views the American electoral system, our state officials, and, and the way that power should be wielded in our government. And as we talked about before, he kind of keeps teasing 2024 running again. Uh, in the meantime, it puts everybody else in the Republican Party on hold because you have to wait to see what he's going to do. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, far-reaching effects for this. And one of the other things uh, that some of your colleagues at NBC were writing about also is changes to the way people vote. You know, the president is going to lose this fight right now in the short term, but in the long term, there might be new laws that pass that make it harder to do mail-in voting, voter ID laws, uh, limiting drop boxes, or ability to correct voters' ballots after, you know, if they made a mistake in signing or something like that. And they're signaling that this might be that next wave of things to come. That's right. A great piece by my colleagues at NBC, where you can read at NBCNews.com, looking at how Trump's insistence that mail-in voting is fraudulent and sort of the extraordinary number of mail-in ballots and absentee ballots that we saw, whether or not this has long-term effects, both on the one end, a place like New York City, uh, which had been sort of slow to sort of modernize their voting rules. You needed an excuse to vote absentee, which wasn't considered sort of best practices. They got rid of that, whether it sort of moves those places ahead. And then other places, a concern that the president's insistence without evidence that fraud was committed, that they might roll back some of the ballot access that we had seen, uh, not just in this election, but in elections leading up to it. And some concern that because he He's been insisting that there's some type of, of malfeasance that unnecessary restrictions might get put in place. And then just finally, I just want to talk uh, briefly about Joe Biden. You know, he continues his transition. He's going to be meeting with Operation Warp Speed leaders this week. He's building the team. And we're hearing that, uh, again, just like the conventions, the inauguration might be a little different, more virtual, no big uh, you know, party on the National Mall, things like that. That's right. If you were planning to travel to Washington, I would not make your hotel reservations or book a flight just yet. I think we're going to see an inauguration that is very cognizant of the fact that there's a pandemic and that President-elect Biden wants to try to curb it. You know, we heard him this week asking people to wear a mask for the first hundred days of his presidency. There will be a vaccine, but it'll be in the very early days of distribution. So don't expect a big party on the mall. Don't expect to see ballrooms full of uh, black tie clad uh, people in Washington that we would normally see. If it happens, it might be a year down the road or it might not happen at all. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And it's so important from a defensive standpoint, from an offensive standpoint, from every standpoint there is. Uh, as you know, China, Russia, perhaps others uh, started off a lot sooner than us. We should have started this a long time ago. Joining us now is Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Miriam. Thanks for having me. 
Wanted to talk about some space news that's been going around lately. Obviously, we've seen China up at the moon right now. They're trying to bring back some space rocks. But there's a larger discussion about space and military powers in space. We know that the United States has the Space Force. I think we're about a year into its kind of development right now. But other countries are also ramping up their space capabilities. This is going to be the new frontier, basically, in different ways as we expand our need for satellites in space and then warring between countries, you know, taking out other people's satellites and things like that. So, Miriam, tell us a little bit more about it, please. The military has been relying on space for a number of years, especially the U.S. military. GPS satellites are used to figure out where to go based on where various soldiers, deployed troops are. We have extremely powerful spy satellites that are able to take detailed images of the Earth that also give the military some idea of kind of what's happening in any given place at any given time. And these capabilities are incredibly advanced, but they also make them really good targets. Like, for example, the spy satellites that are up there these days are extremely expensive, but they're also not that difficult to sort of shoot out of the sky if somebody wants to. Now, there are a lot of reasons why countries wouldn't do that kind of thing, but it's still a concern for the U.S. as other powers like Russia and China start sort of shoring up their own defensive and offensive capabilities in space. What do we know about President-elect Joe Biden and how he might continue the Space Force. I know some people are saying that they hope he kind of takes a hands-off approach and let the branch kind of develop on its own, but they're also saying that he should probably continue this operation. The space industry and space insiders in general actually think that the Space Force is a really good idea. It gives space the priority that it sort of deserves. They see as it deserving as a part of the armed forces. So I think that the hope from some folks that I've spoken to is that instead of sort of making Space Force this kind of catchphrase that kind of calls to mind the idea of actually sending people to space, that instead a Biden administration will allow the Space Force to basically just do its thing. And its thing is not sending people to space. The Space Force is meant to be safeguarding satellites in orbit. So their mandate is to you know, make sure that those essential assets that the military uses every day remain up there and remain usable. So I, I think that's sort of what these folks mean by a more hands-off approach than what we've seen from the Trump administration. Some experts do say that the U.S. is falling behind a little bit in its efforts to secure its space infrastructure. And we know there's other countries, uh, you noted France and Japan, recently created their own military space division. So where are we on that front? So as far as sort of the U.S. shoring up its own defenses in space, I think that what folks are kind of worried about is the fact that like U.S. got out there really fast. Like uh, it was the first country that kind of had this great infrastructure of military satellites up there that could take this exquisite imaging that could do the kind of thing that we're seeing now with just GPS and with imaging satellites. But since that time, effectively since the Gulf War, that architecture has not evolved as much as some think it should. As in, instead of sort of innovating on that and maybe contracting private companies to launch their own constellations with the instruments from the government on them, instead of just 
throwing these extremely expensive satellites up into orbit that make them really juicy targets. I think that folks are a little bit worried that that puts the U.S. in a vulnerable position because other countries are just getting better and better and better. No one is to the point where they're caught up with the U.S. as far as capabilities in space go, but countries are starting to get there in some ways, and they're certainly able to target our satellites if they wanted to. So it's sort of a complicated picture. Like, I think nobody disputes that the U.S. is still way ahead as far as military uses of space, but there are questions about how far ahead the U.S. will continue to be. A lot of this is about satellites right now. You know, we're not in Star Wars mode just yet. You know, <laughs> that, could, that might eventually happen. Who knows? But a lot of this is about satellites right now, as you said. And it, it would be difficult to start just outright destroying satellites. It creates a lot of space debris and whatnot. But there's other ways. There's jamming of satellites. There's other cyber attacks that can be done. That's all possible right now. I think that that is what people are most concerned about. With destroying a satellite, I mean, that's a big move. That's an overtly hostile act. And it's usually pretty easily attributed to whatever country is doing it. So that would be a huge geopolitical problem. But if you have these other forms of conflict that are maybe a little bit more subtle, like you're jamming somebody's satellite or there's a cyber attack that maybe takes a satellite offline and you lose some data, that kind of thing is harder to attribute. And therefore, some people are thinking that that's probably going to be a bit more attractive to countries perhaps in the future, especially if norms aren't established around that kind of behavior right now. Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, you know, psychologists refer to them as shoulder to shoulder interactions. You know, watching football, playing video games, playing golf, interactions where you didn't really talk that much, but it was kind of like the way that a lot of men would see their guy friends. And now without that, they're realizing they had lost touch with their male friends. Joining us now is Samantha Schmidt, reporter at the Washington Post covering gender and family issues. Thanks for joining us, Samantha. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to talk about an article you wrote for the Post talking about men and how the pandemic is forcing some of them to realize they need deeper friendships. A lot of male friendships are often rooted in these kind of shoulder to shoulder interactions, watching sports together, playing video games, things like that. And with things shut down, you know, you can't really even go out with a lot of people. Men are finding out that they're not faring so well, really. And they, they need these outlets. They need their friends to be vulnerable in a sense. Samantha, you spoke to a lot of different guys saying just this exact same thing. So tell us a little bit about what you're learning. I was really moved by the outpouring of emails I got when I tweeted about the story idea. And a lot of men were just telling me that they were noticing how much they had relied on these interactions that, you know, as psychologists referred to them as shoulder to shoulder interactions, you know, watching football, playing video games, playing golf, interactions where you didn't really talk that much, but it was kind of like the way that a lot of men would see their guy friends. And now without that, they're realizing they had lost touch with their male friends or they had a harder time connecting with them and they didn't really have a clear outlet for talking about what they were going through without having those kind of more casual in-person interactions. And a lot of people were really lonely, but a lot of people were also finding new ways to connect and were realizing that they were talking to their guy friends in ways that were much deeper and much more personal than before. You know, a lot of these ways that they were reconnecting 
we're very similar to a lot of other people, you know, Zoom calls, text group chains and things like that. But in one of the examples that you gave there, you said that groups of guys were now exchanging over a hundred text messages a day. And a lot of it could have been kind of stream of consciousness, just fun stuff, top of mind things. But that little by little things did start to get deeper, deeper conversations, as you mentioned about loneliness, the isolation, things like that. And actually, one of the examples that keeps standing out for me is one dad I talked to said he realized his wife, for example, has for her entire life gone on walks with her female friends. It's something that she does all the time just to chat and catch up. But he had never thought to do that with his guy friends. You know, he mostly socialized at the softball league or going out for drinks, watching football. But he has now in the last few months gone on several walks with his guy friends in parks here in DC just to catch up and he's just he loves it and he's realizing why did I never do this before this never dawned on me to say hey man want to go for a walk at lunchtime today <laughs> but he's really enjoying it and finding that he's talking about things kind of in more personal ways and you know when you don't have the distraction of everything else you're doing in these other activities like you it really gives you a chance to just talk and, and let go a bit more yeah definitely a shift for these men and their relationships with each other. And why do experts think that this is the case for a lot of men? Why don't they connect in other deeper ways until, you know, <laughs> until it's too late, let's say, until a pandemic hits and then they realize later that they should have been doing it the whole time? There's not a ton of research on this, but a few people have over the years explored this issue, which they say is really a crisis of connection between men. And they think it's really rooted in the way that young men are raised. And I talked to this one professor, Niobe Way at NYU, who wrote a book about boys' friendships. And she says that as young boys, male friends, when they're really young, they actually tend to be very vulnerable with each other and they share secrets and they have these like very kind of loving feelings towards each other. But then once they start to enter adolescence, like 15, 16, they really start to kind of shut down and be defensive. And suddenly they're worried that it's going to seem gay for them to be close with their guy friends. And so she thinks this is kind of rooted in, in homophobia and in misogyny in this culture that just discourages that emotional intimacy between men. So suddenly it becomes weird to just connect with men for the sake of connecting. And it needs to be rooted in a more masculine activity such as sports or video games. There was a guy you profiled in your article. His name was Manny, who went through this whole thing. He went through a breakup. He was uh, obviously isolated because of shutdowns and things. And he realized that he really needed social interaction that he wasn't getting anymore when he was just going to go see the, you know, sports games and things like that. And you kind of go throughout the article with him at the end. He says, you know, I also needed to step up too. And I'm going to be real with my friends now and, and let them know that I need to talk about stuff or be vulnerable in those senses. It was really hard for him. And I think it shows how this is a time when a lot of people are struggling. And sometimes when these kind of moments come up and also when they're going through something like a breakup and suddenly you lose somebody that you were more dependent on for that kind of emotional intimacy, you suddenly realize, who do I go to for this? Who can I open up to? And Manny realized that he had kind of grown apart from a lot of the guy friends that he would have hung out with before. And he was trying to be more deliberate, more intentional about opening up to them and being vulnerable around them. And he hopes that by him doing that, that they'll respond the same way, that they'll start to talk about their own lives because he suddenly realized, like, I don't actually know that much about their personal lives. I haven't met a lot of their family members. You kind of lose some of those more personal details when you don't have a kind of culture of checking in on each other and asking about more personal stuff that's going on in your life. Samantha Schmidt, reporter at The Washington Post covering gender and family issues. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.